It happens fast. Been talking about myths the last few weeks. Do you know that last week's message we cannot keep in stock? It's, it's sold out again. It sold out last week. It sold out again this morning. Because we're popping the bubbles of myths that have gripped the church. And the things that I'm tackling in this myth series are myths that I see hindering and, and intimidating the church from being the church. If there's ever a day the church needs to be the church, it's now. And the real church, the spirit-filled church, the church of the New Testament was a force to be reckoned with and God knows we need that now. I've also had people come up to me and shake my hand and say, I haven't heard the word like this in a long time. And then they say, do you have protection? <laughs> I'm serious. A man came up to me this morning and said, do you have, um, honey, you want to know if I had a gun permit? And, I, and it made me nervous. Why? He said, because you're preaching the truth. You're going to need protection. You know what? I, I said, I said, um, I said, if anybody ever came at me up here, there's about 30 people that would be on them and it would be over fast. Anyway, all right. We hope it never comes to that. Let's look at Mythbusters. Today I'm going to deal with another one. And I'm going to use a, a word that, boy, is it, is it a buzzword? The word judge, judging, judgmental, judgmentalism. I want to talk to you about the myth of not judging others. It's, it's almost taboo now in our culture to judge. We're told all the time you shouldn't judge. Well, what they use with Christians is these verses we're about to read from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus literally says, don't judge. And it's been misinterpreted, twisted, and skewed where now it's been wrongly taught. So I'm going to try to set it right today. But I want you to preach to me and read this out loud with me, would you? Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you're going to be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Well, that sounds to me pretty definitive. We shouldn't judge, right? That's what we're told. Well, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the rightly divided word. And we pray that you will deliver us from the myth of not ever judging, that the church shouldn't judge, that we shouldn't enter the public arena. Lord, in Jesus' name, we thank you for deliverance from this myth so the church can be the church. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, judge not. Now turn to the other side and say, but sometimes judge. <laughs> As with all things, there is a balance to this. And um, let me deal with it. We've been looking at, at myths in the church. Last week, the myth of separation of church and state um, just went off. I mean, went everywhere. Uh, can't, like I said, can't, can't keep it in stock. The week before that, we dealt with the, the myth of uh, turn the other cheek and the myth of Christian pacifism. And as you can tell, I'm dealing with things that are being used to intimidate God's church. The church is the greatest agent for change in the country. It's not the Republican Party, Democrat Party, Libertarian Party, Washington, D.C., the White House. No political force 
is stronger than a praying church. So you, I, churches all over the country are the greatest agent for change in the nation. And God knows we need change and we need it now. We need it quickly. So I want God to raise his church up unencumbered, unhindered, unintimidated, full of the Holy Spirit, red hot, ready to take on the devil and his lies. Now, did you know that Paul consistently warned the early church, and so us, about falling prey to myths? Now, what is a myth? It's a widely held but mistaken belief. A myth is something that a lot of people believe, but it's not true. I personally believe that, that um, evolution is one of those myths. I don't believe that evolution has a leg to stand on. I think it's a myth. Now, you might think that I'm ignorant. You might think that I need to go back to school. But I've been to more school than most people would ever want to do. And I want to tell you I've thought it through. And that is just an example of a myth, in my opinion. Widely held but mistaken belief. Paul warned the church about such things. Listen to what he said. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, he told young Timothy. Watch out for those myths, those widely held but mistaken beliefs. Watch out for them. In Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, Paul has been with the Jerusalem church for a couple of years, and he's about to leave. He's been teaching them how to pray, teaching them doctrine, taking them through Pauline Seminary. But he's about to go now. And he says this, Yes, I know that when I am gone, hungry wolves will come in among you, and they will try to destroy the church. And how will they do it? Also men from your own group will begin to teach things that are not true. And they're going to get men to follow them. So how does the enemy attack churches? Through myths, through things that are not true, through false teaching and false doctrine. And church, I want you to know today that false teaching and false doctrine destroys lives, destroys marriages, destroys cultures, destroys civilizations. False teaching and false doctrine destroys churches. And Paul said, I know that when I'm gone as the strong man, and when I'm gone, Wolves, false teachers are going to swoop in and they're going to do their best to teach you false things, myths, and thereby destroy the church. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, Paul looks down the tunnel of time with a prophetic eye and he says, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times some are going to turn away, watch this, people are going to turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. It's going to happen in the last days. And I want to say to you that we're in those last days, and what he predicted is happening right now. Myths, false teachings, false perceptions, false understandings of Scripture. Myths are, are taking the power from the church, the boldness from the church, leading people astray. And the only remedy is right here in my hand. The only remedy is knowing the truth. The only remedy to avoiding myths is knowing the truth so well that when you see a myth, you know it as a myth and you reject it. 
So here at Turning Point, we're always in the Word of God. We're a Word-based church. We're always in it because faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Myths and false teachings are everywhere in our culture right now. So I'm targeting the myths that I see hindering and muzzling God's church. Last week, the myth of separation of church and state muzzles God's people from getting involved in the political process, from getting involved in public policy, from involving themselves in the way a culture goes and the laws that it produces, that it passes. That's a myth. We should be involved. There's nobody better for the nation than sold-out Christians walking in the teachings of Jesus. Now, this time we're going to look at myth number three, the myth that Christians are not to judge others. The myth of non-judgmentalism, that we should never sit in judgment on anybody because, after all, who are we to judge? Because we're sinners, too, and we've all heard it. We've, we've all felt the pressure. Don't judge me. You're a sinner, too. I want to tell you that this myth of not judging, not ever judging, that has so permeated our culture. You know, you live, leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. You live your life, I'll live mine. Don't judge me, I won't judge you has come from a philosophy that is called political correctness. I believe that the myth of, and the philosophy of political correctness is as damaging, the most damaging philosophy to come down the pike since the philosophy of Darwinism. Darwinism blinded us to God. Political correctness blinds us to our enemies. Political correctness muzzles the church. Political correctness intimidates people from being honest about the way they feel. Now, I want to give you a definition of political correctness so you'll know the animal that I'm talking about today. Political correctness is the philosophy that says we should avoid any language or any conduct that offends other people. Don't offend is the watchword of political correctness. We've all heard, don't, don't offend. Everybody in our culture seems to be offended right now. You know why? because of political correctness. Somebody said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing. You know what political correctness has given us? A bunch of thin-skinned wimps. It's made us too thin-skinned. Oh, you said that and you hurt me. I'm offended. Everybody's walking around with a chip on their shoulder, and it's pitiful. Sometimes you just need to man up and take it and go on. I learned a long time ago in ministry, you, ought to, you better have a, a skin as thick as a rhinoceros hide and keep a soft heart. And folks, in our day, we're in a battle for truth. We're in a battle for righteousness. We're in the battle of the Lord. And we're going to have to get a, a rhinoceros skin and keep a soft heart. And don't always walk around offended. Now, don't offend being the watchword of political correctness means that we shouldn't judge another person's lifestyle or belief system because that would offend them. And we, we really can't offend anybody. So when Christians dare to judge a person's lifestyle or a belief system that we see as wrong in the light of Scripture, people love to pull out our passage that we use today and they quote Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount and they say, your Savior, your Messiah, the founder of your religion, even he told you not to judge. Judge not. Who are you to judge, they say. Even Jesus said we shouldn't judge, right? Didn't he say that? And they quote the Sermon on the Mount. And 
They love to bring up the story of when the woman was caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus and here's all these people and they have picked up rocks to stone her and Jesus also picks one up and says, he that is without sin, you cast the first stone. And they all drop the rocks they were holding and back off and fade into the shadows and because nobody had a right to judge. And they say, see, even Jesus showed that nobody has a right to judge. It's not loving to judge. It's not fair to judge. It's mean to judge. You're being mean-spirited. You're being a hater if you judge. Their weapon of choice is a word. And the word is tolerance. The cultural buzzword that is used to support this view of non-judgmentalism that you should never judge is tolerance. If don't judge is the watchword of political correctness, tolerance is the holy grail. Tolerance. We should tolerate one another. We should be tolerant of others' lifestyles. And when we do so, we're showing love. But if we're not tolerant or even dare to disagree with somebody's choices, we aren't loving and we are labeled very quickly as haters or bigots or hypocrites or some other wonderful word that you just love hearing aimed at you. It's so quiet in here. Some of you have been experiencing this. So since tolerance is being used, I want to define, I want to give you the classical definition of tolerance, and then I want to give you the definition of tolerance as it is given to us in today's society. We need to understand this because, believe it or not, every one of you this week were affected by the pressure of political correctness. And can I warn you, as a preacher, as a teacher, as a man who studies the Bible and watches the news very carefully, I keep my finger on the pulse of our country, it's only going to get worse. Political correctness is going, the pressure of it is going to be placed on the church of Jesus Christ. And we've got to understand what we're fighting and what we're dealing with. So here's the classic understanding of tolerance. It means the act of putting up with somebody or something that is irritating or otherwise unpleasant. I tolerate Texas summers. I don't like them. I think they're brutal, but I tolerate them. You know why? Because God's called me to live here. And so every time July and August get here, I just kind of say, okay, here it is. Lord Jesus, help me. Let it go fast and give me a lot of air conditioning and water. And here we go. And I tolerate, I don't like it, but I tolerate it. I tolerate broccoli. When it's put in front of me, because the Bible says you should eat everything that's put in front of you. And so when somebody puts broccoli in front of me, I don't like it, especially when it's steamed and raw. I don't believe God meant for us to eat it that way. That's just me. But when it's steamed and raw, I tolerate it. And, and there you have a definition of tolerance. To put up with something you don't necessarily like. But there's another definition that's closer to home. And what I want to bring home to us today Here's the second one. This is the classical definition. Quote, the acceptance of people with differing views, particularly in religious or political matters, and fairness towards those people who hold the different views. Now catch this. Classical definition of tolerance is I accept the person without accepting the view. I accept the person without having to agree with them. True tolerance is a form of graciousness. 
whereby I disagree with the view of another, but I don't berate them and I don't attack them for having a view that's different from mine. Tolerance means that I accept people of differing views while still disagreeing with their views. That's the classical definition of tolerance. True tolerance has never meant that I must also embrace the views I disagree with. That's never been the classical definition of tolerance. But you see, there's been a redefining of the word tolerance in our culture. And I believe a large part of it is to muzzle the church of Jesus Christ because our message is a life-changing message. Our message is a nation-saving message. Our message is a from-God message. Our message is a message of love and truth. And the, the devil would like nothing more than to muzzle and intimidate the church. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy and said, God hasn't given you, Timothy, a spirit of intimidation, a spirit of fear. He has not called you, Timothy, to be intimidated. But he gave you a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. Now, here's the new view of tolerance. The new cultural view of tolerance has come to mean something very, very different from what I just gave you. The new view of tolerance means that I must accept every viewpoint as equally true and valid to mine. There's no viewpoint, no lifestyle, no opinion, higher or better or healthier than another. I have my truth, you have yours. You keep your truth, I'll keep mine. Don't you judge my truth and I won't judge yours. We all have our truth and whatever we decide is truth is truth. So the new view of tolerance means not only do I accept the person, but if I'm tolerant, if I'm loving, if I'm walking in the spirit of Jesus, I also accept the view because I don't want to offend somebody by not accepting their viewpoint. And not only must I respect the person, but I must respect the viewpoint. And now I'm watching it go even further than that. Not only must I accept a differing view as equally true and valid as my own, but I, almost, but I must also celebrate them. I must celebrate the other view. If I'm really walking in love, I say to somebody with a different view, hey, great, hallelujah, you've got a great view. Let me celebrate it with you. Let me give you an example. Same-sex marriage is the current raging controversy. I should now, according to society and our own president, celebrate with those who want that arrangement. Hey, congratulations. If I don't, I'm a bigot, a hater, a homophobe? Because how can I not see that the views of those entering the same-sex marriage arrangement are just as valid and worthy as my views? Who am I to judge them? And who are they to judge me? And that's just one example. And, and if you haven't felt the pressure, I want to know where you've been. Let me be clear about something today, church. Classic tolerance does not mean acceptance of what God calls wrong. And it certainly doesn't mean celebration of what God calls wrong. Hey, Jesus was crucified because he offended people. John the Baptist lost his head because he offended people. 
All of the early apostles were martyred because they offended people. Jesus didn't say, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and be sure you don't offend anybody. Y'all can smile at me a little bit. You're looking real serious. Jesus said, go ye into all the world, preach the gospel, and as they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. The truth is offensive. Jesus himself was called the cornerstone, but also the rock of offense and the stumbling stone. I don't know about you, but when I first heard the gospel, it offended me because it told me that I was in sin. But thank God I got offended because I realized that I was a sinner that needed to be made right with God and that my sin needed to come under the blood. Somebody told me the truth. And by the way, if somebody tells you that you've got no right to believe that way, that you've got no right to judge anybody else, if they tell you you don't have any right to do that, remind them that they are right then and there being intolerant of you. It's got to go both ways. This new view of tolerance presents a huge problem to anybody who thinks. Because, watch this, follow logically with me. If I accept as true and valid all viewpoints, all lifestyles, concluding that everything is equal in value, none is better than the other, then there is no more right and wrong. There's no good and bad. There's no moral or immoral. There's no one lifestyle that's better than another. No choices that are better than others. Because all views are equal. And in our gut, we know that's not true. If I go with that view of tolerance that I shouldn't ever judge anything, that I should put on blinders, that when I got saved, Jesus blinded me, and basically see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, If I go with that view of tolerance, I'm going to have to throw away my Bible. Because this Bible is a very intolerant book. And I don't say that in a bad way. This is the very Word of God. And it is intolerant of many things. It makes distinctions between various lifestyles. And I'm sure glad it did that with mine. If it hadn't done that with mine, I would never have gotten saved. It calls some lifestyles good, some bad, some righteous, some wicked, some godly, some ungodly. The Bible that you hold in your hand is thoroughly intolerant of sin. That's where the word repent comes from. If nothing is wrong, what is there to repent of? Do you know that John the Baptist opened up his ministry with the word repent? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus launched his ministry saying, repent, the kingdom of God is among you. And the disciples, when they were filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, said, repent and turn to Jesus Christ, for there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And those people who were preaching and teaching, repent, turn the world upside down and change the whole condition of society. And people come up to me and say, I've never heard the word preached like this. What are we preaching as our nation is sinking into the abyss? Isn't it time to stand up and speak up and identify something that's wrong or right? Amen. 
Now that we've seen the new definition of tolerance and political correctness, let me just look at what Jesus said. He said, well, Pastor, if, if that's true, then why did Jesus say, judge not, that you be not judged? He clearly said it. What did he mean? Let me read it to you again. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it's going to be measured back to you. In other words, what you sow, you're going to reap in the way you judge others. So was Jesus literally commanding his followers to never judge? What, was he actually teaching his followers to blink at every sin, to turn a blind eye to wickedness and immorality in order to avoid judging it? Is that what we're called to do? Judge nothing? Do you know that in just a few verses later, in the same chapter, Jesus turned to somebody and says, there are some wolves in sheep's clothing, and there are some evildoers. He went from telling his followers, don't judge, and he turned around and judged people, calling them the way he saw them, and he's our Lord, and he's our teacher, and he's the one that we're supposed to be modeling, right or am I wrong? Of course, Christian, little Christ. And you know what I found in John 7, 24? In John chapter 7, 24, Jesus said, stop judging by mere appearances, but instead, I want you to judge correctly. Right there in John 7, 24, Jesus told his followers, I want you to judge, but I want you to judge correctly. I haven't called you to not judge. I've called you to, to be involved in righteous judgment. In the same chapter where Jesus said, judge not, in Matthew chapter 7, he turns right around and tells us to judge the fruit in other people's lives. Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are actually ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Well, how am I going to recognize somebody's fruit, the, 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 the way they live and the things they say, unless I judge it? You ladies, you go to the supermarket, you come to the fruit section, you squeeze that fruit, you hit that fruit, you look at that fruit, you check it out for bruises before you buy it, right? He says, when, when it comes to people, I want you to be wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove, and you're going to have to judge because I don't want you being taken in. I don't want you being deceived. I don't want you to be lied to. I don't want you to be corrupted by something that's not true. So I want you to learn to judge the fruit, the lifestyle, and the words of other people. Jesus wasn't very politically correct, was he? Boy, y'all are so quiet today. I must... I must. I'm either hitting a home run or you don't know what I'm saying. I know I'm hitting a home run. I know I am. This is where we live. It's, it, it's, it's okay to judge as long as it's right judgment. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. I've told you that in my backyard I have bird feeders. I have three of them. And I love feeding those birds. I have a big container for bird seed and every morning I go out to feed those birds and they have now come to know me they they sit in the tree and they wait for me and I go to the different feeders and I put the seed in there and I talk to them here you go you're looking at me so strange so I've got a pastor that talks to birds oh you know how you do so I, I feed the feeders and, and and I hadn't done that very long when I learned something because you'd be in the house and you would hear this explosion of bird wings. This explosion of wings. Flop, 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 flop. 
and you look out there, and if you look good, you see. There he is, either on the fence, or in the tree, or in the sky, a hawk. And you know what they did? They profiled him. They looked at the size of that bird, the, the flight pattern of that bird, and they said, that's a hawk. Now, what if they had decided to become politically correct right then and there? And two sparrows were talking to each other, and one of them said, now, we shouldn't judge that hawk. We shouldn't judge that hawk. We ought to leave that hawk alone. He may not have evil intent towards us. And after all, you don't even know for sure if that is a hawk. That might be a great big overgrown sparrow. So let's walk in love and let's, be, and let's give that hawk a benefit of the doubt. You know what you've got? Two dead, politically correct sparrows. <laughs> it's insane. It's illogical. It's dangerous. It defies all common sense to not practice judgment. So what was Jesus forbidding in Matthew 7? Here it is. Jesus is forbidding the wrong kind of judging. The point in Matthew 7 is that we're to avoid judging with an attitude of superiority over another person who has fallen into sin. This is what the church is known for with a lot of people. A lot of people were raised in churches that did nothing but judge. Every little thing you did wrong, you were judged. And with no mercy, no forgiveness, you were put out to pasture, you were ostracized, you were looked down on, you were looked at condescendingly. And there is a wound in you to this day because you experienced that. And you've had a hard time getting back into church because that was your experience. That was the wrong kind of judgment. We're not to look at somebody who has fallen short with some smug, holier-than-thou, snooty-nosed attitude. Because you could fall too. You could fall too. Well, not me, Pastor Jeff. Not me. I've walked with God, yea, these 40 years, and I've never fallen yet. Well, you're full of pride right now. I know that this is what he meant because listen to what he said in the very next verse. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the two by four in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the, two by, the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus is warning against self-righteousness, which is the plank that gets in our eye where we can't even see to operate on somebody else. So he's teaching us to examine ourselves before we judge. He's not telling us not to judge. He addressed this very thing in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We find a Pharisee in the church building, in the temple. And the Pharisee is praying, and he's praying like this. You've got to catch this. God, thank you that I'm not like other men. Can't you hear it? He's oozing pride. And then he starts naming them. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. And then he points to a man in the temple in Jesus' story and says, and I'm not like that tax collector over there. But Jesus said the tax collector could not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man left justified while the other one left condemned. 
So what Jesus is condemning when he tells us not to judge, he's saying don't judge with a critical and judgmental spirit. Don't judge condescendingly. Judge with a restorative heart. Judge with a heart of love, but don't cease judging. Well, then how are we to make right judgment? You say, Pastor Jeff, who am I to judge? Because I do make my own mistakes. Who am I to point to somebody and say, that's not right? Uh, what is the standard for us making the right judgments? Do I, do I get my standards from Dr. Laura, Dr. Phil, Oprah, Mother Teresa? Do I get it from within myself or, or from whatever the culture tells me is right and wrong? Well, the culture told us some things were right and wrong a decade ago, and now they've changed. So th what the culture says is right and wrong is always in a state of flux. No, the standard from which we judge is the unchanging, totally reliable, inspired, and inerrant Word of God. Here it is, right here. It's because the only one who has a right to judge is God. And God has given us 66 books of right, wrong, holiness, unholiness, godliness, ungodliness, the standards from which, the Ten Commandments from which all of our best laws have come. If you take out the truth of God's Word from any culture, that culture is going to cave. I want to tell you again, church, hear me clearly. If you take out the morality, the ethics, the teachings of the Word of God from a culture and leave that culture to itself, it will self-destruct. It's a promise. Because there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. When men decide to be the arbiters of what truth is, they don't come up with truth. And they come up with differing views of truth. So what is our standard? Where do you get our sanity? What, what do we build a society on? Right here. Right here. This. So, so here's where we must stand. We're not called to not judge. We're called to judge correctly. And we judge correctly when we measure things against the Word of God. So here it is. If the Bible condemns it, it's to be condemned. If the Bible commends it, it's to be commended. Period. So I look at what's happening in our culture and I see things that are really going wrong. How do I know that it's wrong? It tells me so here. What do I, what, what do I know the consequences are going to be? It tells me the consequences right here. It's a guarantee it's only a matter of time before the consequences roll in unless there is a turning, unless there is a changing. And who is supposed to hold up the Word of God? Is the world going to do it? Never. Who is called? The church is called to be the displayers of and the speakers of and the proclaimers of the Word of God. Listen to what Jesus told his followers. You are the light of the world. Light exposes you are the salt of the earth. Salt protects from decay. When we shine the light, Jesus said, I put you like a city set on a hill that cannot be hid. Don't go hide under a bushel. Get on the hill and shine. Why? Because it exposes the dust, the cobwebs, the cockroaches. It exposes the evil. And then I want you to go out there and say, it's wrong. This is not right. This is not the way we should go. And that protects a culture from decay. Paul told the church, have nothing to do with the bad things done in darkness. Instead, show that these things are wrong by exposing them. 
That requires judging. When we apply God's Word to the issue, we're not judging. God is. We're only communicating God's judgment. So their argument is really with God and not with you. Now I want to close with this. You can say the right thing the wrong way and lose the whole battle. So how do we, how do we go out and say, you know what? Here's the standard, and if you do this, you're going to pay heavy consequences, and I can't agree with you that that's right. I cannot be politically correct and agree that that's valid. It's not. It's destructive, and i got to take a stand about it. you got to know how to respond when they call you judgmental. How do you respond? In love. It says, speak the truth in love. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, and I'm going to close with this. If I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but I don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. You hear about that, hear that about two or three times, and you're done listening. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. You got to learn to blend the firmness of conviction with the with the spirit of love. If the discussion starts moving from a healthy debate to a fleshly argument, walk away. Don't scream and yell. If you get into screaming and yelling, you're going to make yourself look bad and the church look bad and you've lost the whole thing right there. So don't get into the flesh because even quoting one verse of truth to somebody can haunt them for years. The truth is a good thing. It grows legs all on its own and runs. (laughs) So say with me, we are to judge. Righteous judgment. Let's stand together, can we? How many of you needed this today? Say with me, we can't be intimidated. We cannot be intimidated by political correctness. Can't do it. It's time for the church to stand up and speak up. I want you to bow in prayer with me, would you? And some of you used to walk with the Lord. And I know it in my heart right here. But you've you've drifted step by step. You've just gotten away. I'm not condemning you. And I'm not judging you. I'm just offering forgiveness to you. Jesus wants you to come back to 100% commitment and walk with him. And today is a perfect opportunity to do it. Will it always be easy? No. Will you be blessed for it? Yes. And some of you may never have said, Jesus, Come into my heart and be my Savior and Lord. He loves you so much, He died for you on the cross. He's the only one that stood in your stead and took your sin. And He's the only one that can put your hand in God's hand and reconcile the two of you. But it can happen today. Don't fight anymore, don't drive away without getting your life right with God. 
I want to pray with you today if you'll let me. I want to meet you and I want to pray with you. Because God wants to change your life for the good. So with our heads bowed, if you can say, Pastor Jeff, I used to walk with the Lord, but honestly, I have drifted. And I've already known it, and he's already been speaking to my heart about it. And I want to get right today. Or I haven't ever let him in, and I want to. If you're in either one of those two categories, would you slip your hand in the air today and let me pray with you? Put them real high. Don't be ashamed of him. God bless you and you. Many people here today. I want you to do something. I'm going to ask you to forget about everybody here. And I want you to slip out from where you are. And I want you to come and stand in front of me right here. Just do it right now. Tell your feet to begin to walk. Well, why do I have to come down there? Because everybody that Jesus ever dealt with in the Bible, he did it publicly. You take your stand for him and you're not afraid of what people are going to think. I want you to come now. Slip out and come. And say, I need him. I want him. I need the forgiveness of the blood. And we're going to pray together. Let's just sing for a moment and give them time to come. If you feel a nudge in your heart, come now and come quickly and do it today. You may never have another chance like this. You may never have another one. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. We're going to wait for you. Jesus. Jesus. There's just something. Decision, you probably need to come out like a fragrance after the rain. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, oh, Jesus, let on heaven. Just another moment. Kings and kingdoms. Kings and kingdoms. Oh, we'll all pass away. But there's something.